It was in 1995, in the summer of 1995, that I get a phone call from a guy by the name of Bill Reed. Unless you were at Chase Mountain Baptist Church back in the 90s, you wouldn't know who Bill Reed is. Bill Reed was the education pastor at Shades Mountain Baptist Church. My wife and I and our three little kids, Josh, Jordan, and Danielle, five, four, and two, were living over in Mississippi near Jackson, just south of Jackson at Brandon, Mississippi. I was at a church there called Park Place. I was a youth pastor there. And Bill calls me up on a random day in the summer of 1995, late summer, and he says, hey, Rick, um, our search team has been praying through this, and we feel as if we need you here at Shades Mountain Mission, that you are God's choice to come here to be our next student pastor. Well, this is all news to me, okay? And I turned to my wife, and I told her what happened, because I was in my office that day. I came home. I said, honey, what do you think? And she said, absolutely not. <laughs> and she didn't mince words. It was, uh, nope, we're good. And I was good too, because God had done unbelievable things. Things that, that even today I look back on and it had nothing to do with Rick, had everything to do with what God did. I mean, in the last two years, so we got there my first Sunday at, at uh, Park Place Baptist Church, they told me that, man, we had this vibe because I came from Memphis down here. I left the youth group of about 100 to come down to, to Brandon, Mississippi. And they said, yeah, we got a vibrant youth group. I said, fantastic. Let's take it to new levels. First Sunday I'm there, there's 12. I look around, I said, well, I guess you guys are the 12 disciples. Let's go change the world. Right? In two years, we went from that 12 to 200. And that year, we saw 74 teenagers come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. We baptized 74 that year. That's all God. I'm thinking in my heart, why in the world would God want me to leave this to go to someplace I never heard of? And besides that, we just built our dream home. Right, ladies? We lived in an apartments, right? That's all we could afford. We were just student minister and, and you know, living off nothing, basically. And, and we lived in apartments and somebody just basically said, hey, listen, there is a plot of land in this estate subdivision. It's two acres. What do you think? And I'm like going, I don't know. I don't know if I can afford that. Well, God provided. He provided. And we built our dream home. It was like 2,000 square feet in comparison to 600 square feet. Man, I had a mansion. And by the way, I didn't know how you ladies, how, you know, picking out like fixtures like uh, your lamp in the, in the kitchen and the, the little knobs on your, on your, why that's so important to you. But my, my wife loved it, right? We would go to the, the Lowe's and I mean, it was like heaven and she would be just picking out stuff and she was all in. I didn't realize that picking out a washer and dryer could be such a great thing. You know, she's going, you mean I get to pick out my own washer and dryer? I say, yes, ma'am. Oh my goodness, you know? We picked out our own washer and dryer. We had our house the way we wanted it. In fact, we, we took one acre and cleared it all out and the other acre was all wooded right beside us. And we lived in this little cul-de-sac. That's where our house was. And I had big plans. I was gonna carve out a full-length basketball court. <laughs> I was gonna pour the concrete. We we're gonna put lights up and I wanted the trees to round it because I didn't want the wind to bother my shot, right? I mean... <laughs> And we'd play games and we'd invite people in. It was going to be a ministry and, and I, I was going to build it into the bank. I had these drawings into the bank of the hill so you could sit on the hill and watch the games. I had all these great plans. Why in the world would God say, leave all that and move to Birmingham? So he called me. 
I said, eh, no. The next month, Bill called me back. He says, Rick, you know, we really feel like we want you to come. And I was quick to say, well, Bill, I appreciate the, the phone call and all that, but we're not coming. God has us here. Bill wouldn't take no for an answer. At the end of the third month of him constantly calling, he said these words to him, never forget it. He says, hey, Rick, I don't know why, but God keeps having us come back to you. And his words were, if it was up to me, we'd just move on. I was feeling really good at that point when he said, hey, we just, if it's up to me. Just, he was tired of it, right? He was tired of the rhetoric of me keep saying, no, this is not what God wants for my life. And then he asked me this question. I'll never forget it. And he asked, he says, Rick, I will leave you alone. I will not call you again. God can keep you there. He says, but I got one question I want you to answer. Have you prayed over this? No. I said, Bill, I haven't. But I haven't because I don't want to know what God wants us to do because I am comfortable here, right? Look what God has done here. The people of this church, they love us. I don't have any issues. Everything we do, God just kind of multiplies. Why would I want to leave this and go someplace I don't know anybody? Why? Why would I pray about that? Bill said exactly why I was ready to move on, Rick. He said, will you do this? Will you just pray? just pray. So my wife and I began to pray. And God began to change our heart that a home, he could provide another one of those. Ministry. And by the way, I kept saying no, not because I was thinking about all what God was doing. I said no, because I was fearful in my life about what God wanted to do next in my life. Did I really trust God to replace all the things that God had done? I mean, we were just coming off about a month before this teen tent revival that we did. God gave me a vision. He says, hey, Rick, let's do a teen tent revival. Everybody I shared it with said, it ain't going to work. We ain't going to work, Rick. Why would teens in the middle of the week want to come to a tent? That was old school, Rick. Nobody wants to do that. I said, well, I don't know, but God said do it. So we did it. God provided a 1,200-seat tent. He provided all the chairs. He provided even, the, even the, um, the, the electric company there said, we'll provide power for you. And, this, and somebody provided a lot. Five days, 7,000 teenagers came to that tent revival. Why would God ever want me to leave that? Can God ever reproduce that? That was my thought. I was fearful about what, had, what was happening next in my life. I know for some of you, oh, Rick, that's really kind of trivial. It wasn't for us. We were a young family. We had all the support we needed. We didn't have moms and dads around us, grandparents around us. We didn't have any of that. I didn't have brothers or sisters around us. It was just our little family and whatever else God had around us in that community. We didn't want to leave. I believe everyone in here is facing or has faced trials where fear begins to grip and we lose sight of God's will and purposes and we let that fear begin to cripple us along the way. James reminded us in his book that trials are inevitable. He said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, not if you face trials. God reminded me through that whole process of coming to Birmingham 
to Shades Mountain that there was a verse in Hebrews chapter 11, we're familiar with it, where the author says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't what? See. What we don't see. This past week, I met with our financial advisor. I don't have to say any more, right? Some of you out here are dealing with job security, loss of a loved one, sickness, cancer, parenting issues, financial stress, and I could go on and on and on. So here's a question. How does our faith look in times like these? What does it genuinely look like? Are we the kind of people who would say, no matter what, God, I will trust you. God, you want me to move from Brandon, Mississippi, where you had all these things going on, to Birmingham, Alabama, where we don't know a soul, have no idea. Is that what you want us to do? And if so, Lord, yes, I am willing to go do that. Do we have that kind of faith? Well, when I began to pray about today, titled my sermon is Faith Versus Fear, I went, okay, Lord, is there a story in the scripture about faith over fear? And by the way, there is a whole bunch of them. I mean, I could just start Gideon, David and Goliath, right? Moses, I mean, on and on and on. How, how about Jonah and the whale? How about Noah building an ark? I mean, come on, have you been, been up to Tennessee to see that ark he built, man? It's unbelievable. <laughs> There's many, but God led me to a woman in the Bible who has no name because it really wasn't about her. Is about what God did through her. So if you have your Bibles this morning, whether it's like this or you got a phone, turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. I'll give you a little bit of the background in a second, but I want to read the entire chapter. There's 24 verses. And the reason is I want us to get the breadth, if you will, of everything that's taking place in this woman's life. She is known simply as the widow of Zarephath, the widow of Zarephath. I'm reading out of the old NIV because this is, this is my preaching Bible and I'm going to read out of this, okay? Starting in chapter 17 and verse 1, 1 Kings. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Let me just pause. Here's, here's this guy named Elijah. He is a prophet of God. He enters into the palace of Ahab, the king, and he declares to the king, I want you to know, king, God said there's going to be famine in the land. And, and by the way, King Ahab knew why. He wasn't for God. Verse two, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah because Ahab was now trying to kill him. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine. Some of your translations may say the Wadi Cherish. It's just a ravine, just a brook. East of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and, and I have ordered the, raisins, the, the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. 
Then the word of the Lord came to him. Let me pause there for a second. So, so here's Elijah. He, he says this to Ahab. He goes on the run, run for his life. He's fearing his life. God tells him to go this little ravine. We don't know how long he's there, but most of us would have said, okay, enough is enough, right? I'm tired of the ravens. I'm tired of just lapping out this, this, this water out of this. Let's go find someplace else. He never did. He remained still before God. Let me continue reading. Then the word of the Lord came to him, verse 9, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And also bring me, please, a piece of bread. He has no idea what the situation is with this widow of Zarephath. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was, a, there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Verse 19, give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room, which I'm guessing he was a little boy, right? She was carrying him. She couldn't have been, I mean, she was skin and bones, a little boy. So he took him up to his bed up in his room. Then he cried out to the Lord in verse 20. Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the, to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. Think about what this woman was going through. Think about what she was facing in her life, caring for a small child. There's famine in the land and there is nothing for her. There's three main characters in the story. Actually, there's four. There's God who delivers it all. 
The other characters in the story is King Ahab. He is a bad, bad king. Y'all hear me? Bad king. Look, just go in the chapter above 17, chapter 16. Look in verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Of all the other kings that had come before him, he did more evil in the eyes of God than any other king that Israel had. Look down here in verse 32, talking about Ahab. He set up an altar of Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Azareth pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. He was a bad, bad dude. And he was married to a woman called Jezebel, who was a bad, bad wife. Bad, bad, bad plus bad, bad, bad does not equal good, right? It equals bad, 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 bad is what it equals. So Ahab was not a good dude. He wasn't a good king. He did things his own way. He threw this stuff in the face of God, the holy God, Yahweh. That's who he was. The other character in this story is Elijah. His name literally means Yahweh is my God. He was a prophet of God whose very presence in the land where Ahab was, was a threat to Ahab. He was fighting to rescue the hearts of his people from worship, from worshiping a false and pagan God in Baal. What's interesting here is God brings famine. The Israelites under leadership of King Ahab, who begin to worship this, this, this little G God of Baal. Baal to them was this, this God of, of, of rain, of, of the rain, like to take care of the land and also of, of multiplying people around the, around their, their uh, nation. So this, this picture of a God who would bring rain, that's what they thought. God brings famine. They said, I don't care what your God wants to do. I'm going to bring famine. It was kind of like this slap in the face, if you will. So here's Elijah. He's coming to them to deliver this message from God, to trying to, to, to rescue the hearts of the people from this pagan worship. And remember in chapter 18, the next chapter, Elijah he goes to battle with 900 of, of, the Baals, of the prophets of Baal. Remember that story? They're on that altar. He goes against them. This is that Elijah. And, and by the way, on a side note, Elijah never died. He was taken up in a whirlwind. So if you go to, um, I believe it's in, uh, where is it at? In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, it's the story of God taking him to heaven. He never perished on this earth. A great man of God. And then the other character is the widow of Zarephath. She is nameless. She also lives outside the boundaries of Israel. She was a Phoenician, a Gentile, who trusted in the God of Israel. In the midst of all that Baal worshiping, she trusted in the God of Israel. The widow was mentioned in Luke chapter 4. By Jesus, which I think is interesting. He never names her by name, but he names her as the widow at Zarephath. And then I personally believe when the author of Hebrews wrote Hebrews chapter 11, so that's the faith chapter. So if you go there, you'll see all these greats. I call it the Hall of Fame of Faith. So you have Abraham and Noah and Moses, all these folks who are listening there who have this great faith, amen? And then near the end of the chapter, he begins to talk about people that not by name, but just kind of what they did. 
And one of the things he said in that chapter, I think was interesting, at near the end of it, in verse 35, he said this, the women receive back, talking about people of faith, of great faith. He says, women receive back their dead, raised to life again. I have to think that that author of Hebrews was thinking about the widow at Zarephath. At the end of that chapter, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, all those nameless people in that chapter that had faith, he said this, the world was not worthy of them. Ordinary people with great faith, this world is not worthy of them. Those are the three characters. And when I read the story, I'm going, okay, Rick, what does this mean for us today? I, you know, I don't watch the news for a reason. And then my wife started going, hey, listen, did you hear this about Israel, what they're saying about Israel? You haven't heard this about what they're saying about Hamas and the people in the Gaza Strip. And I've been to Israel twice. And, and you know, I, I said, okay, I will watch the news. Our world's a mess. And by the way, there's great fear in our, in our world right now. We see it in our own country, right? We don't even know who we are anymore as a country. There's great fear. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm going to try to convince Kenneth in doing a sermon series on the end times. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Figure out what's going on. What does God's word says? When I look at this story, I say, okay, Rick, how does this help you, Rick? How, what, what are the, some of the, the things you can pull out of this story that will help build our faith? I call these five faith builders from this story. Five things I get out of this story I think we all can relate to and apply in our lives. Here's number one. In the darkest of times, God is at work. Amen? In the darkest of your times in life, I want you to know if you're a follower of Jesus, God is at work in your life. He has not forgot you. He has not forsaken you. He will never do that in your life. He is at work. And I want you to just remember when these dark times come, that God is at work. Remember back to those times that God has taken care of you in your life. The truth is we forget real quick, right? And, and you know what they did with the nation of Israel, that when they had these great victories, they'd build these altars of remembrance so that when generations would come back and then they'd see that altar, that Gilgal, they would go, oh, this is what God did then. We all should have those kind of altars in our life, right? of remembering back that in, in the midst of some dark times, God was at work. Three things are in play in this story with this widow. Here's number one. She was a widow, which means that she was poor. She had no one to protect her, no one to provide for her or care for her. She was on her own and she knew it. She knew that there was no one who was gonna come to her rescue. She was preparing to die. One meal left, and then we're going to die. Widows in biblical times were the poorest of all, which is why God tells us as a church to take care of our widows. You hear me? Take care of our widows. She had a son who she was caring for and starving to death. She had one little piece of flour, a little, little cup of flour, and a little bit of oil to make one more meal. It's what she's dealing with. But here's the trump. Here's the ace of hearts in all of this. Even though this was going on in her life, she was a believer in Yahweh. She was a believer in a holy God, the God of Israel. She had that going for her. She didn't have much else, but she had that, amen? 
There may be things going on in your life and you're looking at it, you go, I ain't got much, God. There ain't much happening in my life that is good, but I have you. And because I have you, I know that I can get through today and get to tomorrow. In the darkest of times, God is at work. Look what, look what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9. He writes, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. He could have said, and God is able to make all grace to you, but he didn't. He added the word abound in there. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound. There's that word again, in every good work. That word abound in this text literally means to exceed the measure of. In this case, it was grace. Grace was at the end of that. So in this case, Paul is saying, I want you to know our God not only will give you the grace you need to get through whatever you're going through in life, he can also exceed that by giving you a measure more of that grace. In other words, grace upon grace upon grace in your life. You may be struggling with finances and you don't know what's going to happen next. And I love what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. He says this, keep your lives free, literally without covetedness. Keep it free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence or with boldness, the Lord is my helper. Not this world. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid what can man do to me? I know how that can be when you don't have anything and you wonder what's going to happen next. And I know some people in this room, I know because I know your testimony, I know what God has done, where you felt like you didn't have anything. And it's amazing what God did next in your life. And I would say, make sure you remember that. We, when we truly trust that God is at work, no matter what the circumstances may, may, may be, grace and faith will always increase in your life. They will always increase. So faith builder number one, to help us understand going forward, when I'm facing trials or I'm facing fear in my life, I know that in the darkness of time, God is at work. I'm gonna remember that. Number two, God will make his word come to pass. It's what happened in this story. Elijah said, God had told me this. This is what's gonna happen. That's exactly what happened. He told this woman that, hey, use up that jar of flour. Use it for me. Because I want you to know that God is going to fill that up. And that's what he did. For the jar of flour in verse 16 was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And you go to the very end of that chapter and not only did God provide for her food and sustenance, but he also brought back her son from the dead. And she says in the very last verse, she says, the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. The word that you're speaking, Elijah, is absolute truth. This, this is absolute truth in your, in your life. And I want you to know you can bank on this. There's not a whole lot we can bank on in this world, but I can bank on this. Because his word is true for all of us. Because trusting in God's word will always, having God's word at our disposal, trusting in his word will always produce these three things in your life. Always. Number one, protection. Protection. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. God provided a protector in Elijah in her life. God's word will, will provide 
protection in your life. Number two, it'll always pro uh, provide purpose in your life. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my what? Path. Lord, I don't know what you have in store down here, but I'm gonna trust you because your word says to trust you and it's gonna be a light unto whatever you have next in my life. Whatever that may be, it's a light unto that path. You give me purpose. He gave the widow purpose when Elijah said, hey, your flower's not gonna run out and your oil's not gonna run out. And I want you to know, I'm gonna be here with you. I'm gonna protect you. And she had substance every single day. God gave her purpose. And lastly, because trusting in God's word will always produce not just protection or purpose, but it will always produce proof in your life of who he is. John 1, 1, it says in the first part of that verse, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. God is who he says he is. He isn't because Rick said something or Kenneth said something or some theologian said something. God is who he says he is because the word of God says it's true. He says that it is true. There's a bunch of verses I could add to this. I don't have time this morning. But here's a couple of them. One is Isaiah 55, 11. It says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In Romans 8, so, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word and, tr and are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and that truth will set you free. Amen? It will set us free. Believe the word of God in your life. Here's another principle that I found in here, one of these faith builders. It's number three. It says, blessings are a result of humble obedience. Blessings are a result of humble obedience in your life. What do you mean by that, Rick? You know, sometimes we have these blessings and we're quick to kind of move on from those blessings and we don't really just receive and we just kind of move on. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I, I got an allowance. Y'all remember that day? Any teenagers get, still get allowances anymore? I don't know, but we did. I got $5 a week, okay? I thought I was rich, by the way. I had three tasks, three Number one, pick up my room. I, I grew up in, a, you know, my dad was in the Air Force. I was born on an Air Force base. So there was going to be certain structure in my life that was going to be always consistent. And if I wasn't, there was always consequences. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay. So one of the things, my job to get the $5 was to take, pick up my room. Now, it wasn't one of those things where I had to make sure that, you know, my, all my bed was, had four corners on it and I could take a quarter and slap it on there and it bounced. It wasn't that kind of thing. But I had to pick up my room. Literally, I would, I would many times just kick things under the bed. Until I couldn't kick things under the bed, then I would be throw it in the closet and try to shut the door. But when you walked by my room, it looked like it was picked up, right? So that's the first thing I had to do. Second thing I had to do is take out the trash. And I had to take out the trash without my dad or mom what? Telling me, right? I see the trash is full. They had an expectation. I just take the trash out. It's not hard, right? All you teenagers in here, take the trash out. It's not hard. Ain't gonna cost you, but I don't know, maybe 30 seconds of your life. Had to take the trash. And here's the third thing. For $5, I had to mow the grass. Now, I know what you're saying. Some of you teenagers out there are going, gee whiz, man, five bucks? You're getting ripped off, Swing. <laughs> I know, that was, that was back, 
in the 60s, okay, <laughs> late 60s. So I don't know, $5 then, maybe like $50 now, I don't know. But for $5, I had those three tasks to take place. And my dad didn't want me, we didn't want, want for him to have to tell me to do those things. He says, Rick, as you grow up, these are the things you should do, you do them. If you do them, you get an allowance. If you don't do them, you don't get your five bucks. That was a deal, right? I learned to do those things because I wanted that $5. So when I sit here and go, okay, so, so blessings are a result of humble obedience. That is absolutely true in your life. So what was the widow's blessing? Now, I know that on the surface, we would go, the widow's blessing is this, that she didn't starve to death. Amen, right? I think it's bigger than that. I think the widow's blessings were two things, grace and mercy. I think it was grace and mercy. Grace that she could live another day and take care of her child and watch her child grow up. Grace, by the way, definition-wise, is unmerited favor. She didn't earn that. She was given that in her life. So this picture of grace in her life, this, this unmerited favor that God just blessed her with because she was obedient to do what God had told her to do. And he throws in mercy in her life. I want you to know, widow of Zarephath, you're not gonna have to navigate the next year or so of your life by yourself. I'm gonna put a protector in your home and he's a prophet of God. Listen to his words. Trust what he says because he's speaking for me. God did those things for her. There was this blessing that was a result of this humble obedience in her life. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, but he said to me, my grace, God's grace, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about the weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. Amen? Absolutely. So when I'm at the lowest of my lows, when I'm at, at the greatest amount of fear in my life, the truth is if I'm obedient, there is a blessing that comes with that obedience in my life. And many of you in, in this room, you know that this is true because God has demonstrated this to you in your life. In 1 Kings, the author writes, observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. So Lynn and I, we make this, this move from, from Mississippi to here. And I'm going, how can God replace all this stuff in our lives? We're still living in the same home that we bought some 27 years ago. Did he replace the home? Yeah. Is my wife ready to move? Yes, but it's five bedrooms, big house, don't need it anymore. He replaced ministry. I never thought that God could replace the ministry that we had back in Mississippi, and he did. So many teenagers came to know Christ over here in Birmingham. And they were, they're impacting the world today. Many of them are preachers and they're on the mission fields and, and they're, they're leading their homes well. They're, they're, they're in their community and they're sharing their... God bless that ministry going forward. Our three kids all found their lifelong spouses here in Birmingham. We're so grateful for that. At the end of this next month, at the end of December, I'm gonna have our, we're going to have our sixth grandchild. And they're all here. What a blessing of obedience, right? They're all here. And they wore me out yesterday for eight hours. They wore me out. 
<laughs> no excuses, right? There's no excuses because of preaching God's word. Amen. It's a blessing because we were obedient to follow what God wanted us to do in our lives. I never thought I could have any more impact than I had back in Mississippi, but God has allowed us to impact people's lives for all these years. And by the way, God has put people in our lives to impact us. We wouldn't be at, wouldn't be at Westwood if we had never made the move. We're so grateful for God and his blessings. Number four, faith over fear is God's answer of deliverance in our life. And I would say to us, just trust that. Faith over fear is God's answer of deliverance in our life. Faith brings freedom. Fear brings bondage. So we got this story of this lady and, and, and bless her heart. She'd gone through the famine and, and at the last moment, God rescues her from dying of starvation. And then all of a sudden, so a little time later, this little boy that she carried in her arms dies. He dies. In times of crisis, one of two things will happen in our lives. Number one, we look for someone to blame. That's fear. In times of crisis, one of two things will happen in our life. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus, one of two things will happen. Either we'll look for someone to blame. Isn't that what the woman did at Zarephath? She blamed God, Elijah. Why have you done this to us? And by the way, before we condemn the, 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 the widow at Zarephath for having this all of a sudden lack of faith, you women in here understand. I, I would imagine that when she was near death, she was probably closer to death than her own son. Right? I mean, when it came down to the portions that were left, and, and I would imagine as a mother, what she did is she gave her son twice the portions that she received. And she kept taking some of her portions out and giving it to her son so her son would live, right? That's what a mom will do. And so she had sacrificed for this son, and the son is alive when she thought that she was going to die with her son. And now her son is dead. Golly. If I was in her shoes, I'd be going, what's going on? What, wasn't I faithful? Didn't I do what you asked me to do, God? And yet you allowed this to happen in my life? What is going on? Faith over fear is God's answer of deliverance. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? What a great story, right? Daniel rises to like one of three people over the entire nation. And, and Daniel's job was really to make everybody else work. And he did a great job of it, and they didn't appreciate it, okay? Like, he held them accountable. And so there was this coup that began to take place, and, and they went to King Darius and said, hey, king, you know, uh, you're the great king, and, and uh, anybody who bows to another king ought to be throwing the lions in, right, King Darius? And by the way, King Darius loved Daniel for what he was doing. They were prospering because of him. And the king says, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that sounds right, right, right? So what happens well, they come to Daniel and find out he's praying to a different God. He's not praying to the king. And they reported to the king. And the king, they made a decree. They made it a law that anybody does that and it's found to that, they would be thrown in the lion's den. Now, I don't know really what was going through Daniel's heart. But it didn't seem like he feared too much. He went into the lion's den believing that God was going to protect him. Somehow, some way. I don't know what it looked like. 
But we know he came out of that lion's den. And all those dudes who try to, you know, play a trick on him, they were all thrown in the lion's den and they all died. Faith over fear is always God's answer of deliverance in our life. And last thing we're done, trusting God is a day-by-day process in your, in your life. And I would say if you're a baby Christian and you haven't begun to practice in your life, just begin, just start. I don't care what it looks like. I'm not expecting you to have this long, drawn-out Bible study and you're a brand-new Christian and you don't understand what any of the words mean. I am saying, though, as a Christian, I ought to have some sort of relationship with the Holy Father in my life, right? And you only have a relationship because you do something. So do something in your life. Spend some time, pray. Man, I'm in a car 45 minutes to an hour every day going from my house in Vestavia all the way down here. Every day. I got 45 minutes in which to do something with, right? By the way, the Bible app you got, it's got a little, little thing on there. You hit it and it actually talks to you. This great voice comes around and it reads the scriptures right to you. No excuse. Absolutely no excuse. Trusting God is a day-by-day process. It's what happened to the woman every day. I don't believe that Amazon showed up at her front door with a huge box of a, a big vat of flour, right? And, a, and another box over here with a big jug of oil. I believe that every time she went to the jar and the jug, there was just enough for one more meal. I'm going to trust God tomorrow. I'm going to trust him tomorrow. One more meal God provided day after day because she was faithful along the way. Trusting God is a day-by-day process in your life. Last verse, and I'm going to be done. It's Exodus 14. It says, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see, I love this. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Remember what's happening. They're fleeing Egypt, right? They're freeing the Egyptian army. And God says, hey, don't worry. What you see today, those Egyptians, you will never see again in your life. Golly, how good is that? You will never see another day in your life. And this is what he says. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The anxiety you you see today in your life, if you let the Lord fight for you, you'll never see again. The fear you sense in your life, I'm not sure, Rick, about moving to the next place, even though God has opened some doors, I want you to know that fear that you see today, you'll never see again when you begin to trust God with faith. That's what happened to the widow of Zarephath. It was a day-by-day thing that she went through. The Lord will fight for you. Don't ever forget that. Begin to trust him. Five faith builders. In the darkest of times, God is at work. God will make his word come to pass. Blessings are a result of humble obedience. Faith over fear is God's answer of deliverance. And trusting God is a day-by-day process in your life. Here's the impact point. The question this morning is not, will you face trials and fears in your life? Rather, will you have the kind of faith that will overcome fear and trust wholly on a risen Savior who, by the way, sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and I? Mm. Faith in Yahweh, the one true God, will always triumph. 
always, always triumph over fear in your life. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in our world. I really don't. When I was meeting with a financial advisor and, and she was going, hey, you think you got enough money to retire? I said, I really don't care. God's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of me.